Hi there, and welcome to the first ever episode of Life on the Brink. Me and Gabe here finished degrees in conservation science last year, and through it, we met a ton of incredible people that are dedicating their lives to protecting species, and we wanted to bring their stories to you. With so many different species out there on the brink of extinction, we want to know what it is that drives these people to save the one they're focused on, what makes that species in particular worth saving, and the highs and lows that go along with it. And what better way to start than with our guest on this first episode? When we were trying to decide which episode to release first, this was the interview we both thought best represents everything we want this podcast to be. Our guest is an ornithologist, conservationist, photographer, science writer, and is fresh off the set of the recently released doco, Breaking Boundaries. In this episode, we talk about her PhD trying to figure out how to use listening devices to protect the tiny population of Kangaroo Island glossy black cockatoos. There are subspecies of the glossy black cockatoo that live, as you'd expect, on Kangaroo Island off the coast of Adelaide in South Australia. We get into how this bird went from a conservation success story to a conservation horror story, and we learn how she kind of accidentally ended up in a David Attenborough documentary. And don't worry, we fanboy over it a lot. <laughs> so here it is, episode one of Life on the Brink, featuring the Kangaroo Island glossy black cockatoo and the incredible Dr. Daniela Texera. Oh, and we'll be popping back in like this to explain stuff from time to time. Yeah, I mean, you're here to talk about the glossy black cockatoos, but I was looking through the publications you've been a part of, and at the start of the list, I'm seeing words like stingray, humpback whale, bioacoustics. Where did you start on this journey to being a glossy black cockatoo researcher? Um, <laughs> it was a bit of a 360, to be honest. So, I yeah, you're right. Like I spent most of my, probably the first 10 years of my career working in the marine science space. So my undergrad was in marine science. My honours was on stingrays and sharks. Um, well, actually before I finished my undergrad, um, when I was doing my honours actually, landed a job standing at boat ramps in, <laughs> in and around Brisbane and looking at people's fish and collecting data. That was my very first um, job in the fisheries department, which is actually where I still have a part-time job now in a completely different role. But, but yeah, so I started out um, in my early 20s really focused on marine science. That was really where my passions lied. I really love sharks and stingrays. They're some of my favorite animals and that was where I saw my career heading. And it wasn't until I went back to do my master's that my perspective on things not changed, but sort of shifted a little bit. I wasn't, I, you know, had a very limited understanding of terrestrial biology and mammals. Like I never worked on mammals. Um, yeah, it was wonderful and um, really opened my eyes to a whole new world of conservation. And that's when I really became focused on the problems rather than the species. And so when it came to do my PhD, I thought, you know, I'm just going to apply for anything that I think has some kind of conservation value and see where I end up. I was really interested in bioacoustics. So this project on black cockatoos came up. Um, and so I thought, you know what, I've never worked on birds. I've never really worked in a terrestrial environment, but I'm going to give it a go. And yeah, ended up getting the 
getting the position, getting a scholarship. So suddenly <laughs> I was working on birds. Okay. First question we've asked, and there's already a lot to unpack. Yeah. <laughs> bioacoustics. Can you give me your best definition of bioacoustics? Yeah. Whew. Um, all right, let's go. Let's take me back. A rough, rough answer for me would probably be the, the study of sounds living things make and how they use sounds to interact with their environment. So maybe like how birds use different signals and calls to, I guess, show different behaviors. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's pretty intuitive. Bio, life, acoustic, sound. It's, it's studying the sounds of life. Yeah, it's become, and it's, it's just becoming way bigger now because there's so many cryptic or like hard to find species that we can now locate using sonar and like sound recording devices. Yeah, I feel like Daniela was pretty casual in how she said she switched from studying stingrays and the acoustics of whales into studying black cockatoos. <laughs> you don't hear too many people that start off like studying things in the oceans and things that can swim. And going in the complete opposite direction and going to things that fly. <laughs> yeah. So we asked her why, what fueled that switch? Um, well, I guess, uh, why, why in particular Black Hawk 2s? That's a difficult question to answer. And I've been asked that question quite a few times. And I think for me, it kind of comes back to the, the broader questions of why is any species important or rather why is biodiversity important and it's really because I see value in the amazingness of evolution and what we've been able to kind of well not we but what the world has been able to create through billions of years of evolution to end up at this point where we are today with such this remarkable diversity of life on this planet um, so protecting that is really what drives me it's it's sort of like just a deep fundamental respect for life and evolution. Um, so that's sort of like the personal reasons, but when you get to really practical, um, really practical side of things, I think black cockatoos are really easy to overlook. Um, they're large birds. They tend not to say fulfill some of those ecosystem services that other people might think of when you talk about biodiversity, like pollinators or, ecosystem engineers, those sorts of terms. So people do tend to overlook them for that. But the bottom line is we don't really know how they kind of fit into the ecology of their landscapes. We know that they do some kind of seed dispersal, whether or not that's significant or not, we're not sure. Um, but for me, it's not about that. It's not, that's not the aspect that I come at it from. So your aspect or the aspect that you're coming up from is more just, I guess, it's just incredible that these, like, every single species has come out of almost chaos and has evolved into this incredible things and you want to protect each one of them? Yeah. I mean, I'm still fairly pragmatic. Like, I understand that's not possible. We have very limited resources in conservation and we do have to make um, really tough decisions about how we allocate our money and, and our resources and time and which species should we or shouldn't we save. So I, I fully appreciate that and we always have to make those decisions. Like even me choosing to work on black cockatoos is a decision to not work on something else. So that's something I do think about and consider. But, yeah, it is about just the fact that these things are here and they are deserving of being here and why shouldn't we? try and save them. Um, particularly things that just tend to slip away without people knowing that they ever existed. 
there's something about that that really speaks to me. I, I'm not all that interested in working on, say, koalas, which are really in the public eye um, because there's already so much support for them and their extinction would be, um, you know, a huge loss, a huge misfortune, but the public would be very aware of it and would do everything it could to kind of stop it getting to that point. Something like a glossy black cockatoo, most people don't even know exists or even black cockatoos, any species of black cockatoo, people often don't realize that they even exist and their extinction could just happen with very little fanfare, which we've seen happen with, of course, millions of species like invertebrates or, um, you know, even something like the Bramble K. Melamese on the Great Barrier Reef that just disappeared without people even knowing that it existed. And that's something that I'm really passionate about avoiding. Okay, so Bramble K. Melamies, this sounded super familiar to us and we couldn't really remember why. Um, and so they're like these little rodents that look like your typical black rat, except they're way cuter, smaller and redder. Yeah. According to the Australian Museum, Bramble K. Melamies used to live on an island in Australia's Torres Strait called Bramble K. Uh, they disappeared sometime between 2009 and 2011 after more than 90% of the vegetation on the K was lost five years earlier due to seawater inundation. And CSIRO say that these little guys were the first mammal species to go extinct due to climate change. And this is why Daniela says that she likes appearing on podcasts like this so that glossy black cockatoos don't get forgotten the same way. So part of why I do so much communication and put myself out there, um, as uncomfortable as I find that sometimes, is really about if these species go extinct at least we knew about it and people had the opportunity to care. It's, uh, it's actually really interesting that you say that because me and Gabe were chatting earlier and I was like, we were talking about how growing up, we literally only thought there were, like, like, obviously we're interested in animals, but we only thought there were just two, two types of black cockatoo, just the yellow tail and the red tail. And we thought that was it. <laughs> well, even that's a, that's a good starting place. A lot of people say, oh, I only thought there was white cockatoos. Like that's the, <laughs> the extent of their knowledge. <laughs> so, Yeah, I mean, I remember going and seeing the bird show at the zoo when I was growing up and they had yellow-tailed and red-tailed black cockatoos in the show. And it was easy to tell them apart because it was in the name. But yeah. these glossy black cockatoos, I mean, how do you differentiate them from the rest of the black cockatoos? So glossy black cockatoos um, are quite distinct, firstly, in the habitat that they're in. So if you see a black cockatoo in a she-oak forest um, or casuarinas, people call those trees with the long needles, if you see a black cockatoo in those trees, it's probably going to be a glossy black cockatoo. So that's the first thing. Um, visually, they look very similar to red-tailed black cockatoos. So they're all black or brownie black all over with red in their tails. But the females have really patchy yellow all over their heads. So red-tailed black cockatoos have um, fairly uniform spots all over their face and, and across their body, down their chest. Glossy black cockatoo females really just have this really random patchiness of yellow feathers across their head, um, which is actually individually unique. The males, if you just saw them side by side, you could easily get them mixed up if you didn't know what you were looking for. Um, but also their behavior is really different. Glossy black cockatoos are far more 
shy. They tend to hang out just in their their pairs or or trios, so the two adults and a dependent juvenile. But generally, if you're out bushwalking, you're not going to come across big, raucous flocks like you tend to think of what cockatoos do. Glossies are are much milder um, and, yeah, more meek in their behaviour. So when you're out in the field, can you look at a bird and tell which one it is? A lot of the time you can tell who's who. Um, During the nesting period, it's very rare that they would travel far away and at least at the end of the day they're always going to come back to their nesting area. Um, as long as their nest is active. So it's quite easy to tell who is who by their association near a specific tree. But also there's unique behaviours between the individuals. Some females are really noisy and they will beg their male mate for food incessantly. And others, are they just, you know, give the odd call here or there and then they'll just happily kind of retire into their nest hollow. Sometimes we actually have nests in the same tree. So two nests going in one tree where there's two hollows and you can tell that there's a dominant female so that one will always wait, you know, on another tree or on another limb for the dominant female to kind of come in and do her thing before she goes into her hollow. So there's definitely individual differences in behavior. I am with the different behaviors. Do Mm. you, have you ever come to a point where you've started, I guess, picking out favorites among them? because of their behavioural differences? <laughs> Not really. I <laughs> This is going to sound super nerdy. <laughs> We're both giant nerds. So don't <laughs> <laughs> um, my PhD research was in bioacoustics, so I was really studying the vocal behaviour of the glossy black cockatoos and certain females not only called more often but they had a huge range of um, diversity in their call types. Some females were much more stereotypical, so it wasn't as exciting to kind of analyze the data from that nest because it was sort of the same thing every day. But some females, it was this massive variety of calls and you just sit back going, what are you, like, what are you doing? Like, why is it so different? And so I started to have like sort of favorite nests because the data was interesting and when you're in the the depths of a phd and you're having to sift through sound files very closely and it's a tedious job um you know that kind of diversity makes things a bit more interesting but other than that i don't really i haven't had favorites per se that's fair (laughs) with the um with the types of calls i make what kind of like behaviors can you tell from the like these audio files or acoustic files It's quite amazing. Um, We can basically tell all of the main behaviours that would happen at nests. So glossy black cockatoos have fairly distinct behaviours that happen at nests that you don't see in other places. And those actually change throughout the nesting season. So we can actually tell roughly how old the nest is based on the behaviours that we're picking up. Things like the female begging for food. So she relies quite heavily on the male to feed her because she then feeds the nestling. So the male doesn't feed the nestling at all. We can often hear the nestling calling for food. We can pick up when the female goes into the nest hollow, she gives a specific call. It's this very deep, guttural, growling kind of call. Um, One of my favourite calls is the male's courtship call. So the male does this remarkable, really awesome 
call that um, to the female. It's this call like. All right, so we were curious to see just how spot on her impersonation was. And so we got her to send us the files and this is what it sounds like. And he fans his tail feathers, his beautiful bright red tail feathers to the female um, as a sort of pair bond maintenance behaviour. So we can pick that up. We can, of course, pick up flight calls, alarm calls, contact calls, and, of course, nestling calls. When the nestlings get big enough, they're extremely noisy. So that's like my favorite call because then you know that the nest has survived to that point where there's a big enough nestling, um, which is, you know, that's that's the ultimate goal is you hope that the nestling survives. So a whole range of behaviors. And it's at the point now when I, when I listen to a sound file, I can really tell what's going on. I can tell when the parents are coming in, when they're feeding, when they're going in the hollow, out the hollow. Um, yeah, a whole range of stuff. Okay, so at this point we realized we've been talking about Daniela's PhD a lot but not actually asked her about it. So we doubled back a bit and drilled down into why she actually started the PhD and what the point of the PhD was. I suppose working for a lot of years before I went back to do my PhD, I had a bit of a different perspective than just research. I really wanted this work to be applied. So when I started out, I made a lot of contact with the recovery teams and people on the ground who would actually potentially use an acoustic method if it worked. And I said to them, what what would you like this to do? What kind of data would you like to be able to collect? Because I could go out and do a full study on all sorts of things, but if that's not useful to you, why would I waste my time? Um, so really the most important thing was, is there a way that without people, with sound recorders only, we could actually measure nesting success? So that was the thing that I was after. And I had, after speaking to a few people, I had some idea of what I might be looking for. And essentially at fledging, when the nestling flies out of the hollow and joins the flock, um, people had seen that on very you know rare occasion, but there had been a lot of noise associated with that event. So I really wanted to see whether that was you know noisy enough to be distinct from other events. Yeah. And through a lot of time in the field, um, a lot of sitting at nests and a lot of data collection through video and also through the sound recorders, we were able to pick up a unique signal at fledging. So that was like the thing that I was after. Uh, and when those young birds do fledge and leave the nest, what does that sound like? Is there a specific call that you're looking for? Or is it more just like a cacophony of noise? It's pretty much a cacophony of noise. Yeah. <laughs> so right up until fledging, like in the sort of the final week of nesting, the nestling gets very noisy. It is calling and calling and calling and calling upwards of like 50, a hundred times in an afternoon, just screeching its guts out. It's, you know, absolutely going off while also practicing its its flying so you can often hear the wing beats as it's stretching and strengthening its flight muscles in preparation for fledging so you can often hear it calling plus this like you know of its wing beats that's really cool so that's how you know in your sound files that fledging is probably going to happen that day or in a, in a few days and you tend to have the parents perched maybe at the top of the nest tree or in a nearby tree responding to the nestling with their sort of contact calls. They're not usually coming down to feed the nestling at this point. Sometimes they do, but they tend to just kind of hang back. And at some point, the nestling just gets so worked up. It's so stimulated. It just takes off and it's 
screaming. The parents are screaming. If there's other birds around, they start screaming. And it's just this whole like celebration, we call it. It's so cool. And then they fly away from the nest and it gets softer and softer and softer. And in a spectrogram, which is how you visualize your sound, you can see your high frequency components fade off very quickly because they're flying away from the sound recorder. Um, They then disappear out of the soundscape and they don't come back to the nest. So you won't detect them again in your sound recording. So that's how you know the nest has been successful. Okay, so this sounded like the most amazing bioacoustic celebration you could imagine. And so we really wanted to know what this sounded like. And so we were able to grab it off her. And this is what that celebration of leaving the nest sounds like. Fantastic. They had so much success figuring out this celebration event that they actually have started using it in the field to help monitor red-tailed black cockatoos. Yeah, now we are actually using that out in the field um, for red-tailed black cockatoos, monitoring um, over 80 nests I think we had this season to look at fledging success. So it's really an awesome method because you could never monitor that many nests with people. (laughs) It just would be extremely expensive. That's super cool. Um, Working with them, I guess, have you had a a best day, like one day that just stood out or maybe a couple of days that stood out from all the rest working with the black cockatoos that you just remember as just being amazing? I have a lot of amazing days in the field with, with the glossy black cockatoos. Probably one of the best moments was the first fledging event that I witnessed in person. Um, That was on Kangaroo Island and it was at this nest that we named Motel and I was following it every single day because the nestling was being so noisy and I was sitting there with my camera rolling just every day hoping to be there the moment it took off and to actually see it fly out of the nest and its parents follow it. For a second, I didn't believe that that is what just happened. I kind of took a double take and then I saw three birds flying away and I was like, oh my God, that was it. Um, And I was just over the moon. It was so, so wonderful. Um, Join in with a cacophony noise. (laughs) I was by myself. (laughs) I was like, I I just wanted to celebrate with someone. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it was really, really awesome. Not only because it's such a special thing to witness, but because then I knew, right, that is a thing I can bring into my research. This is actually a sound worth investigating. So that was, that was awesome. Um, but then other times that I can think of where it's just that full immersion of like sound if you've got a big flock around you. Um, and for glossies, like I said before, this doesn't happen all that often, but it, it does happen around drinking areas. And if you just have a huge flock where they're all calling, it's just this, you just kind of got to sit back and take it in and just think, wow, this is really amazing. This endangered species is all around me calling and you just yeah it's it's so wonderful so that's happened to me a few times and I'm always really really excited about that 
Oh, that would that would just be incredible. <laughs> and then I guess on the reverse side of things, have you had a have you had a worse day? In a PhD, there's lots of terrible days. <laughs> <laughs> We've had um, all sorts of things go wrong in the field work. So there was many, many times during my research where I just thought, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I've had equipment fail. Um, some of the worst days has been when you've gone to a nest and the bird has died. And um, some <laughs> this is the thing about sound recording, right? So working in bioacoustics, Sometimes months later, I would go back and analyze the sound data for a nest that I know had failed. And then you would come across some pretty confronting sounds in the sound files, like a predation event. And that's some you don't expect it. Um, so suddenly you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, I can note down that that one was probably predated on and I've captured the sound file of it. So that's not fun to hear. Um, yeah. It'd be pretty brutal to hear, especially after you've been following them for such a long time. Oh, definitely. It, it is, you know, how, how it is. Like they don't have a huge amount of nest success um, naturally. Um, so you expect it, but still you come across it um, and that's that's not great. So in terms of my PhD, that would be certainly the worst moments um, other than the bushfires. That's obviously number one. <laughs> Yeah, um, we want to talk about the bushfires and we'll get to that in a minute. But even before we do, glossy black cockatoos weren't exactly fine and dandy before the bushfires came along, were they? Yeah. Um, so in 2016, when I started my PhD, we did a population census. It actually, actually is a census, which is quite remarkable and the only reason they can do a full census is because they're you know on an island and they know where they occur so in 2016 we counted 373 birds on the island at that time and that was the last population count until after the recent bushfires just to clarify because it gets a little confusing with all the species and subspecies rolling around here 373 is the number of kangaroo island glossy black cockatoos there are subspecies of the glossy black cockatoos. We looked far and wide to see how many glossy black cockatoos are left in the world, but there's nothing. Uh, so 373 only refers to that group of glossy black cockatoos on Kangaroo Island. 373 birds is very low, of course, for a subspecies. That's why they're endangered. Um, but having said that, it's an increase from where they had been in the previous decades. So in the 1980s, we were looking at somewhere around... 150 birds, perhaps even as low as 115 birds, and breeding success was very low because at that point um, they hadn't yet realised that possums were um, a huge cause of mortality at nests. So once they took action on that, um, so possum control, installing nest boxes, planting food, the population really was going up each time they did a population census. And it was at the point when I was doing my PhD 
that the recovery program staff who I worked really closely with said they were sort of in a maintenance phase now. It wasn't at that critical point anymore where they were in the 80s and 90s. They really knew what they needed to do. They just needed the funding to continue to do that to get the population to a point where um, it was no longer endangered. But they were in a really precarious position, mostly because of the historic loss of habitat. Their habitat is very fragmented and very small on Kangaroo Island. In 2016, it was only around 1% of the island's area. So very, very small. We always knew that one big event could potentially wipe them out. That's why um, you really need to continue with those conservation efforts to expand the population to kind of provide a bit of a safety net for them. So you know when everything's looking a little bit too good and stuff's all kind of coming together, it's on the up and up, and you kind of know something's coming, like on the Titanic, and then you see the iceberg, yeah, the bushfires was kind of this point for these birds. I've always said that this is one of the success stories in conservation in Australia because they did stuff on the ground and it really made a difference. The population responded, it increased, things were looking really good. Um, that was, of course, before the bushfires. Okay, so the bushfires. The 2019-2020 bushfires absolutely raged through Kangaroo Island. 46% of the island's 4,500 kilometres squared were burnt, nearly half of the island's extent. And they did post-fire habitat surveys and they found that 54% of the glossy black she-oak feeding habitat was burnt and 35% of all their known nests were destroyed in the blaze. Daniela was actually one of the first scientists who features in the recently released David Attenborough documentary, Breaking Boundaries, and they follow her returning to some of the nesting sites she had been monitoring for the first time since the fires had passed through. And there's this pretty pretty brutal moment they capture where she sees one of the nesting sites she's been following charred and the tree that it's attached to is just collapsed. Uh, and not even the iron collar that they put around the bottom of the trunk to stop possums from getting to the nests survived the blaze. It was just torched. It's this moment that garnered massive coverage in the press and online and so we wanted to bring it up with Daniela to get her take on how that moment came about and just the impact that it's had. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was brutal. Yeah, um, yeah, I don't know how much you want to go into that, but yeah, that was a really, really brutal, difficult time. And it still is, to be honest. I mean, um, we'd love to, I'd love, definitely love to go into it if you, if you don't mind. Yeah. I guess just... I can't, I, like, I can't imagine how difficult it would have been. How did you, I don't know, pick yourself up afterwards and just sort of keep going? That's a good question. And to be honest, I don't know if I have. Um, well, I mean, I have. I'm still here and <laughs> still going. Um, it was a really strange event because I wasn't on the island at the time. I was in Queensland at home. And when the fires were happening... I couldn't be of help on the island, so I just turned my attention to fundraising and awareness raising. I went really hardcore on all of that, and it was my way of coping, I suppose, feeling like I was able to contribute something. The strange part, particularly about that time, was I was actually in the last month 
of my PhD or the last month where I was going to submit my thesis. So I'd actually taken time off all work and everything. I was at home just focusing on thesis writing and the bushfires happened exactly in that month. So I was simultaneously doing social media and campaigning for funds and doing lots of media interviews while trying to then go home and write my thesis at night. It was the most, uh, just the weirdest feeling. It was, it was so surreal. I almost had to disassociate the two. I had to sort of treat my thesis as not the thing that I was pouring all this emotion into at that time. And I don't think it really hit me until I went back to the island about a month later for a bushfire recovery planning workshop. I was on the island to contribute to the Glossy Black Cockatoo Program. And it wasn't until I was back there where I think I actually finally let my guard down and allowed myself to process what had happened in the flesh. That was exceptionally difficult. And since then, it's been this weird mix of emotions of not feeling like science is enough, certainly my own science, but then also feeling, no, like I'm a real advocate for this cause now. Like people think of me when they think of the Kangaroo Island Black Glossy Black Cockatoo. Um, I really need to continue on because this is really important stuff beyond my research. So it's a bigger question, like how do conservationists deal with these sorts of issues? It's, it's something that I think we all need to grapple with a bit more. We don't tend to talk about this in our degrees, um, but the f- reality is nowadays there's so many problems, particularly those of us who are still fairly young, like we've got hopefully decades of work in this space ahead of us. We are going to see this stuff. We are going to see disasters, catastrophes, we might see species go extinct. Um, I don't know if we're trained to deal with that. So I personally, I've been taking far more um, measures for my mental health, like significantly more since um, the bushfires because, yeah, it's it's really, really confronting and I know that it's probably in my future again. So, Yeah, I, just, I couldn't imagine and yeah, I think it's, you just have to take the time for yourself to make sure that you're okay as well. I, I, I honestly couldn't picture something like that happening. We hear so much about it, but just being at the front of it, especially like something you've worked on for so long, would just add such an extra element to it. It'd just be so tough. Yeah, it's, um, it's exceptionally tough. And I'm really glad um, in Breaking Boundaries that they decided to show that side of the scientists. That was a, a choice by the producers and I'm really glad that they did because that's a very, very real thing that a lot of people still aren't willing to discuss publicly. But I think, you know what, we're human and we do this stuff because we care. We're conservationists because we care. Um, so why why shouldn't we discuss these issues? So I definitely agree. I think um I think uh, I'm I mean I I I I do love that science is just strives to be like unbiased and I guess sort of pure but it's uh, I think trying to ignore the fact that we are emotional is one of the reasons why sometimes it's just not broadcasted enough because we don't involve a lot of emotion and emotion's what sways people. So, being yeah, yeah totally right. Um, that's that's the really hard line to kind of toe, I suppose, between um, yeah, your science and then what you communicate to the public. So, 
I'm a real stickler for science and doing things in the in the correct way. I've been taught very stringently about experimental design and we need to do everything we can to minimize our own personal biases. But that said, I know that just talking in statistics to the general public is not necessarily the way to convince them that these things matter. And sometimes they do need to actually see that behind those statistics as a person, a person who really cares. So I can do as all of my objective work over here, but once I communicate that to the world, that's where I have to go, yeah, I'm here. I'm a person. I witnessed that, you know, whether I go and then write papers on the bushfires in a scientific way, that's one thing, but I was actually there witnessing that thing and that had its own impacts on me. So, yeah, I, um, I don't, I don't mean to sort of cut off, but, uh, just to switch to a bit of a lighter note, me and Gabe were both definitely wondering, especially just because of the like conservationists and when you're like environmentalists and all that sort of stuff, David Attenborough is like one of the biggest, the biggest person in the field. We were just curious as to <laughs> what it was like to actually be called up to be in one of his documentaries. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I didn't know it was an Attenborough documentary when they called me up. <laughs> what? Really? <laughs> yeah. So they kept that pretty under the wraps for a while. Um, and I was so caught up in all of the bushfire stuff at the time that I really just thought, you know what? Yes. Okay. You can feel me in the field. Like that's fine. No worries. But yeah, at the time I had absolutely no idea what really it was going to be about. I, I knew who the producers were and I knew that they had worked on Attenborough um, films before that, but I didn't give it all that much thought. Um, I think the moment where I found out that it was an Attenborough film, it, I didn't believe it. I thought, I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to believe this until I see it <laughs> because surely I'm not in an Attenborough film. <laughs> and then when I watched it, um, we had a pre-screening of it a few months ago. And when I first saw the segment with myself in it and hearing David Attenborough say my name, I just nearly passed out. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't actually take in what I was watching. I was like, wait, what is that? Is that me? <laughs> I had to go back and watch it the next day to actually remember what was even shown because it just was so surreal. It's like, no, uh, that's not me. I'm not a TV person. What? <laughs> I just, yeah, I couldn't even imagine. And having him say your name just <laughs> would be so cool. Ah, <laughs> uh, I tell you what, it's it's completely bizarre because it's not something I've chased. It's not something I, you know, really sought out. I really am not comfortable in front of the camera. Um, one of the things in Breaking Boundaries, if you've seen it, you'll see um, that I'm talking directly to the camera in one mm. point. it's It wasn't an interview where, you know, often on documentaries where you're sort of off to the side and facing a person, mm. this was like straight to the camera. And that was so difficult to talk to a lens <laughs> was incredibly difficult. And I just, I, I'm, I don't know how to do that. Like I'm not a, you know, a, a TV anchor. I don't know how to talk to a lens. Like I just wanted to keep turning to the director and, and speak to her. And she kept having to say, no, repeat that to the camera. <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> so yeah, I, they were very patient with me. If you could see the amount of outtakes, it's 
you know, phenomenal how bad I was really <laughs> to, to actually end up with this film. I'm like, wow, that's, that's pretty special. And that shows that, you know, people do care about glossies or, or bushfires. So, yeah. Well, it's for the best. Yeah. Because <laughs> it was, it was an amazing segment yeah, watching so that back. Good. And it was, it was pretty amazing too, to see, like you were saying, the less glamorous Aussie wildlife getting such a center stage. Have you seen any sort of impact from that or feedback from that of people who just weren't exposed to glossy blacks or kangaroo island or anything like that? Yeah, I've had a lot of emails from people all around the world just saying how incredibly moving they found the whole documentary, but particularly learning about the glossy black cockatoos. And surprisingly, one of the things that quite a few people have said to me was, um, there's this bit where I list out the number of animals that died in the fires and you go through, you know, this many birds, mammals, frogs, etc. and people had no idea that it was that severe. Those numbers weren't just for Kangaroo Island, that was for all of Australia. But, mm. yes, yeah, so many people came back to me and said, oh, my God, like I can't even, I can't even believe that that many animals died in one event. Do you want to read those numbers? Yeah, so to recap, the numbers are 143 million mammals, 2.46 billion reptiles, 180 million birds and 51 million frogs were killed by the 2019-2020 Australian bushfires. Yeah, that's not fun, is it? Nope. <laughs> um, so I think that was a really good decision by the producers to put that in there because that was something that... You know, if you think of billions of animals, there's only, you know, 7 billion people on the planet, but way more animals than that died in this one event. That was pretty impactful. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, uh, well, and I was going to say, we were also chatting about this as well, probably even bigger than being on a, on a David Attenborough, Attenborough thing. I saw that you're on an episode of Totally Wild. (laughs) Yeah. That's the the (laughs) highlight of my career. Ranger Stacy, here I come. <laughs> oh, I just remember. I think every Aussie kid knows that show growing up. Oh, <laughs> totally that was an experience. That was my first time in front of a camera. Um, and I felt so uncomfortable because the the presenter has so much energy and he's just like, <laughs> he has this weird way of speaking. And I, I just... I just started laughing like all the time. I was like, I cannot take this seriously. Um, (laughs) And the other thing was we were meant to be talking about the kangaroo island glossy black cockatoos for that, but it was actually filmed in Queensland because it's where I live. So we had to sort of gloss over the fact that it was like the wrong species of she-oak trees in the background. (laughs) I'm like, if anybody knows anything, they're going to know this was, and I kind of fumbled on my words. Like I would say, oh, they're endangered. Oh, oh, they're vulnerable because, you know, like I would just get all mixed up with what what we're talking about. So good times. (laughs) (laughs) I definitely feel like I would be the exact same. (laughs) Uh, yeah, I, it's it's a weird thing. It's another thing we don't get taught. Like, how do you talk to a camera? Uh, like, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. That's um, I gonna, this is my first time probably behind a microphone, and you should have seen how long it took us to actually figure out to get it to work. Mm. <laughs> we spent like two hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. These things are, are difficult um, and, and quite funny, and you have to learn quickly. Yeah, definitely. 
I, I wanted to sort of finish up by, you know, you've sat with us for an hour. So I feel like I want to just give you a bit of like a, a platform. If you had 30 seconds to, to talk to people about the Glossy Blacks and the work you do generally, uh, what sort of message do you think people need to hear? Um, well, so, so this kind of gets back, back to the film a little bit. Um, one thing I'm really passionate about is that biodiversity conservation is not all about climate change. Climate change is extremely important and a very serious threat that we need to take far more seriously in this country. But it's not the only thing that's driving extinction. And when we talk about things like the glossy black cockatoo, of course, the bushfires are basically caused by climate change. Um, But we also have to deal with really important things that are happening today. Things like land clearing, like invasive species, like disease. So let's not focus completely on climate change. Um, When you're thinking about how you can make a difference, it's really important to also look at some of these other things. There's so many environmental groups out there who are doing remarkable work on the ground, preventing more land clearing, um, you know, stopping land use change is absolutely critical in some places. Those are the things that we really need to focus on as a matter of urgency, whilst we kind of get the local and global, of course, um, policies right to deal with climate change. So that's something I'm, I'm really passionate about. And I just want people to know that there are ways that they can always help out. I get a lot of emails from people saying, what can we do about this? And of course, there's the whole range of domestic stuff that you can do at home. Those things really do make a difference, like thinking about your carbon footprint, thinking about what you eat and how much stuff you consume. Like that stuff actually really makes a difference. But really supporting the people on the ground who are doing the hard work. That's the thing that limits conservation, at least here in this country, is basically money and resources. There's so many people out there willing and dedicated and brilliantly trained who want to be out there doing more, but they're limited by by public support and by money. So yeah, get educated, make your voice heard, let your politicians know that you care about these issues, donate money where you can, and you'll go a long way to helping conservation in this country. Cool. Um, and given that, are there any particular groups that you would recommend for um, the glossy black cockatoos or just black cockatoos in general? Yeah, of course. Um, so for the Kangaroo Island glossy black cockatoo, the funds for that is mostly um, handled by a charity down in South Australia called the Nature Foundation. So if you go to their website, you can actually select the Kangaroo Island Glossy program to donate directly to. And that's where all of the fundraising that I've done has has gone to. But here on the East Coast, where Glossies are also threatened and we're also really impacted by the bushfires, there's a few groups that you can get involved with. And one that I'm a partner on is the Glossy Black Conservancy. So that's a local nonprofit group here in Southeast Queensland and Northern New South Wales. And we're just a bunch of um, people from government, um, universities and local businesses who are doing what we can to help Glossies in this area. So you can go to our website, check us out, um, glossyblack.org.au. And you can get involved in our Citizen Science Days, submit data. Um, So there's, there's a few places. And of course, you can always reach me on social media at Black Cockatoo Project. And although I'm not a charity, so you can't donate money to me, I can always (laughs) recommend um, places where you can. Um, And that always flows through either to people on the ground or to researchers like myself who are are doing conservation research. Awesome. 
Um, that's so sad, isn't it? I think that about wraps it up, doesn't it? Awesome. Do you want to um, hit stop on that recording? Thanks for joining us. Thanks. That was great. Are we done? I think I think we're finished. <laughs> That's our first episode done and dusted. Look at that. That is a wrap on episode one. We did it. Thanks we so much. <laughs> Thank you so much to Daniela for this whole interview. She was honestly so cool to talk with. And thank you to Kyle Morley for our awesome theme music. Our website, lifeonthebrinkpodcast.com, is by Angus Bazina. Also, some news to round out the episode. A post-fire population census from last year counted 424 glossy black cockatoos on Kangaroo Island. Because it was the first census since the 2016 count of 373 birds Daniela mentioned, we'll probably never know how many glossies on Kangaroo Island didn't survive the fires. Unfortunately, there's also likely to be tough times ahead for the ones that did survive, since so much of their feeding habitat will take years to recover. But at least there's a bit of hope. We also want to give thanks to Jake Barnes for decking out my room with all the audio equipment I need. (laughs) And most of all, thanks to you for supporting us by listening. Also, if you're listening on a podcast app that has reviews, we really, really want to know how this is going and what you think of this episode. For starters, it helps stroke our egos, but uh, on a kind of serious note, you know, this is a passion project for us, so we're going to keep doing it no matter what. But podcasts do sink or swim in their first few weeks of life. So, if you're on your commute, waiting for dinner to finish cooking, dumping out. We don't care. <laughs> if you've got a couple of few, if you got a few seconds to spare, open whatever podcast player you're listening on and leave a review, follow our feed, whatever it is that your podcast app of choice lets you do. Because every individual interaction we get from you guys will basically help us reach a much bigger audience. So follow, leave reviews, and as a way of showing thanks and keeping you entertained while you do, the second episode of Life on the Brink went live straight after this one did. So if you're hearing this, whenever that may be, there's another episode ready to roll. So we hope to see you there. And here's a bit of a teaser. But what I mean by culture is that this is a behavior that's passed in the matrilineal line. So mothers, daughters, aunts, um, sisters, they are passing it down to their cubs. And, um, you know, that's a behavior that is literally featured by every single lion in the population. So that's what I mean. That's what I mean by culture is that there's very few places in Africa where lions regularly climb trees um, and every single individual does it or nearly every single individual does it.